My aim here is to give a kind of basic introduction to how to read Aquinas. This is actually a rather um, pedagogical introduction to thinking with Aquinas on a basic subject, uh, on a very difficult traditional question, which is one that we might call the motives of the incarnation, the question of the motives of the incarnation. The idea of the motives is the question of why would God, as it were, intend to become human if you take the Christian traditional Orthodox creed as a basic given? Why would God intend to become human? And what, what is the divine plan, the divine intention, intelligibility, wisdom, goodness associated with that? And there's a lot of deep thinking about this in the Christian tradition, even up to contemporary theology. Uh, and in the high Middle Ages, there's a lot of really kind of profound reflection and, 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 and deep argument. Yeah? So I'm going to tr trace out some of Aquinas' basic answers to this question. And it's a way of exploring something obviously very distinctively Christian, uh, that is to say the idea that God became human, and look at the inner intelligibility of that claim. Now, uh, just a couple more methodological introduction thoughts. Uh, there are three parts to the Summa. If you use the Latin terminology, which... Thomistic nerds always use. It's the prima pars, the prima secundae, the secundae secundae, and the tertia pars, which means the first part. The first part of the second part, because it's really fat. The second part of the second part, and the third part. And where we are right now is, where we are in the installation is in the third part, in the very first question. The third part, of the, so in the first part of the Summa, Aquinas treats the question of God and the Trinity and creation, creation of human beings. In the second part, he looks at, it's huge because he looks at the structure of moral action. It's all of his moral theory, his theories of grace, virtues, and vices. In the third part, he looks at Christ and the sacraments. So, in the third part, he begins with the question, and the order is always very important for St. Thomas Aquinas. 13, I didn't say who he is, but I'm presuming people know he's a 13th century Dominican scholastic uh, doctor of the church and a very elevated mind in the Western intellectual tradition. He starts with the question, why did God become human? And then he's got a lot of sub-questions, and I'm sort of throwing us into that by going to one of those second sub-questions here. Um, was the incarnation necessary for salvation? Now, another final methodological point. This is theology. This is, as it were, what he sees as scientific reflection on divine revelation. Which means if you ask the obvious question that a lot of us modern people would ask is, why do you believe there's an incarnation? Aquinas would say, because God has revealed it and has given us the grace to believe it, and we are allowed to believe it by consenting to it in faith. He is most clearly not saying, nor does he believe, that you should believe in the incarnation that Jesus Christ or Jesus of Nazareth is both God and, and, and human. Based uniquely off of, of deducing that uniquely from premises of natural reason. He doesn't think you can prove mysteries like the Trinity or the Incarnation by your natural powers of reason. He's quite a sophisticated philosopher in his own right, but he sees this as something that's been given us to know by divine revelation. And we can talk maybe, if people are interested in the question and answers, about why would, what, would be motives for, what would be motives for taking divine revelation claims seriously, which, for which I think there are some very good ones. Um, so it's an a posteriori reflection on the mystery of the Incarnation given that it has been revealed. All right, so God has revealed this, and now we're looking at the intelligibility. So it's not an attempt to argue from premises of natural reason to the reality of the incarnation, but from the givenness of the revelation of, of the incarnation to see its inner intelligibility. So it's, that's why it's 
a science of theology. You're looking for inner kind of um, grounds, explanations, intelligibility within the revelation. So what I'm going to do now is just go through, uh, I've chosen out a few articles. I'm going to spend the most time on the first one. And I'm just going to go through a few of them and read them with you and comment on them. And now this may seem to you like really strangely pedantic. I could have read this on my own. But this is what we do in the Dominican order often when we teach Aquinas. It's not all we do. We don't just sit around and read Aquinas. But what, what we... But, um, but you can actually spend your time doing like you, a lot. There's a lot worse things you can do with your intellect. Because actually when you sit around and comment on him and discuss him in community, you start to think about what the inner argument is. And then it allows you to build bridges to engage with more ancient and more modern figures. But one of my, you know, aims here clearly is to make the Summa Theologiae, this is from the Summa Theologiae, to make that less intimidating and more accessible. Okay, so I'm going to start with this second article in the first question of the third part of the Summa Theologiae, was the incarnation necessary for human salvation? Now, of course, Thomas immediately distinguishes. I answer that a thing is said to be necessary for a certain end in two ways. The end is our salvation. First, when the end cannot be without it, as food is necessary for the preservation of human life. That's very straightforward. You need to eat or else you will die. Secondly, when the end is attained better and more conveniently, as a horse is necessary for a journey. In the first way, it was not necessary that God should become incarnate for the restoration of human nature. That may seem to you uncontroversial, but he's disagreeing here with St. Anselm in his book, Cur Deus Homo, which was written in the 11th century. It seems to be taking a different tact, which we'll talk about a little bit more. For God, with his omnipotent power, could have restored human nature in many other ways. But in the second way of it being more conveniens, in Latin, convenient, it was necessary that God should become incarnate for the restoration of, the human, of human nature. And then he quotes Augustine. Okay, the first thing to understand is one of the main differences between Dominicans and diocesan clergy in the 13th century was that as an exercise of mendicant poverty, Dominicans did not ride horses, but walked everywhere. It's thought that Thomas Aquinas walked something like 10,000 miles in his in his life, from place to place. So when he asks a room of Dominicans, when he says to a room of Dominicans in the 13th century, is it necessary to have a horse to go somewhere? It's latent with a lot of meaning. It would be, you know, it would be like if I said to you, well, it's to get from here to Manhattan, it's necessary that you have your own private helicopter. That would be kind of the, the evident like, analogy for us. Right? It's, it's necessary in the sense that it would get you there faster, but like nobody has one. So he's talking to he's, so so he's saying to them it's it's fitting it's more expedient but obviously God didn't have to do it so there's a very strong emphasis on divine freedom God could have done things very differently just like you don't typically ride a horse wherever you go now the word convenience should be mentioned briefly um, we do get the word convenient from this Latin word but really the better translation the more apt one is fittingness. Convenience, an argument from conveniencia is an argument from fittingness. Now fittingness in medieval Italy, it means something kind of all the way from in a really beautiful, lovely way to like um, in a very expedient, efficient way. And it has lots of registers of connotation. So 
So what it's saying, he's saying is on the one hand, God really didn't have to do it this way. God did not have to become human to save the human race. But there's something beautiful and fitting and profound about the way he did it. You say, well, beautiful, fitting, profound, that sounds kind of aesthetic and vague. Okay, what he's saying is he's tracing it back. His argument is he's being traced back here to what he believes about the nature of God or what we might say the attributes of God. So on the one hand, God is all-powerful. God is very mysterious for Aquinas. We don't know very much about God philosophically. But we can say God has the power to create the world and sustain it in being, and so God is in some way all-powerful. All and he's free. God didn't have to create the world. God doesn't have to become incarnate. And so there's freedom and omnipotence in God. And so God doesn't act by coercion, as if he consulted a higher moral law than himself and felt compelled. I'm alluding to like the Euthyphro problem in Plato. But on the other hand, Aquinas doesn't think that the exercise of God's free prerogatives is arbitrary. So convenientia means God does it freely and you might say in his serene omnipotence, but God also becomes human out of his bountifulness and his wisdom, his goodness and wisdom. So it's not arbitrary freedom. Right? So if you think about other figures he's acting, he's sort of talking to here, He's anticipating someone who comes after him with his Occam on kind of God's capacity to do whatever he jolly well wants to, and it will be good because God jolly well wanted it to be. And he's saying, well, the, the free initiatives of God are emanations or expressions of God's wisdom and goodness. So it's, you can't really think about God's freedom without thinking about God's wisdom and goodness as motivating aspects. But then against Anselm, clearly, I think, who was writing you know, before him in the uh, 11th century, 10th century, he's saying, um, um, sorry, 10th and 12th century, he's saying to Anselm, um, so Anselm argues that God really needs to become incarnate if he's going to save us. So like, if we're going to be saved, God's going to really need to commit to this means. It's just the helicopter. Otherwise, we're not getting to Manhattan. <laughs> Right, so God actually had to produce a helicopter. I'm sorry to vulgarize a little bit, but anyway, there you go. So, I mean, the, so the idea is that um, it's neither ab absolutely arbitrary nor is it necessary. It's beautiful and fitting. So that's the prelude. Why is that important? Because then what we're going to see is all the sort of reasons he's going to give are reasons that sort of show the numinous bountifulness of God or the numinous kind of wisdom of God. And he's going to give ten reasons why God became incarnate. And he's going to say at the end that this is not exhaustive. So the first you know, thing to take away from this is, for Aquinas, the effects of grace in the world are pregnant with a kind of intellectual richness that is not exhausted by a single human perspective. It's not perspectivalism in the Nietzschean sense. Like There's just lots of arbitrary perspectives of different people by the according to willpower or something like that. He's saying there's like lots of compatible, wise reasons that God does things, but you can't sort of, as it were, give a single reason why God has become human and then you're done with it. There's a kind of depth that has to be acquired, a depth perspective that is acquired through us looking from multiple angles. Okay, so now he goes on and he um, puts in effect two tables in place. And I've got them in bold. Uh, each, of the, each of the five reasons that come under them are arranged under a kind of heading. And he says, there are two kind of general reasons God became human. One for our furtherance in the good, 
And the second, which is on the next page, because of our withdrawal from evil. Now this is very interesting if you, if you work a little bit in atonement theology, um, or if you've kind of made, traveled a little bit through the pages of you know, modern reformed Calvinist theology or something. It is interesting that uh, the very first, the first perspective of Aquinas is going to be on our furtherance and the good. So he doesn't start with God became human because we are sinners in need of redemption. He is going to say that. But he starts with the fact that uh, it's, it's kind of God's, God becomes human to unite us with God. That's basically the bottom line. Now the, the pedigree of this is, you find it most auspiciously articulated in the 4th century by St. Athanasius of Alexandria in his little book on the Incarnation. There's two major works that precede Aquinas on this in the tradition. Athanasius is on the Incarnation. God became human so that we could be united with God. And Anselm in the West, uh, on in the uh, 11th century, God became human to it, so as to justify us or make restore a fallen human race to a right relationship with God, a relationship of justice and of freedom to do uh, the good. Okay, so the first theme you might call Athanasius's divinization theme: God united us Himself to us, so that we could be united with God. Or, if you like to use a classical term divinized. And Aquinas sets this argument out in terms of something he takes from St. Paul, where St. Paul says that the greatest of things are faith, hope, and love. If you've worked at all in theology, you know that those are called the theological virtues, the virtues of faith, hope, and love that you can acquire divine, uh, supernatural faith, infused faith, infused hope, infused love. This is not human belief. If you tell me, you know, the talks at 7.30 on that floor of the philosophy building, I put good faith in your word, that's natural human faith. If you tell me that God became human and I believe you, for Aquinas that requires a special grace that God gives you, the grace of supernatural faith to believe God and to know God's truth by a kind of enlightenment of the mind. Hope is an exercise of the will that allows us to desire God and place our confidence and hope in God as a kind of principle of happiness and salvation, an aspiration for God uh, is what we receive from hope. And love is, is charity, uh, a kind of bond with God uh, elucidated from the heart or inspired in the heart by which we can really rightly love God um, with the love that, uh, that Christ himself possesses, that Christ allows us to participate in his love for God by grace. So what he does then is set these three out as the way that we undergo rapprochement with God. But you'd say, well, okay, I could have faith and hope and love in God who reveals himself to me without an incarnation. I mean, that's what you would believe about Judaism, right? If Paul had remained Saul, he could have had faith, hope, and love in the God of monotheistic God of Judaism who revealed himself to Israel. He wouldn't need an incarnation. So Aquinas is going to talk about how the incarnation is, is sort of related to the logic of growth in faith, hope, and love. So he says, first with regards to faith, that which is made more certain by believing God himself who speaks, which, sorry, which is made more certain by believing God himself who speaks, let's say in the human condition, like God by becoming human uh, interpolates faith much more directly. Right? So to believe in God through prophecy given to um, inspired authors or thinkers is different than believing in God who is himself human and speaks in the human condition. Um, secondly, with regards to hope, 
which is thereby greatly strengthened, since Augustine says nothing was so necessary for raising our hope as to show us how deeply God loved us. Um, it may not be a conventional subject of university conversation, but there are people plagued. I don't want to shock anyone here. I'm a Catholic priest, so I see this a lot. There are people, very ordinary, reasonable people, plagued by the idea that they have done things wrong for which they cannot be forgiven. And um, they suffer from often a sense of guilt or shame or a sense of poor moral self-worth or the hope of forgiveness. And Aquinas is saying, well, the argument about whether that forgiveness is possible is an argument that is over because God has bothered to become human. So that like really nourishes hope. And, like if God bothered to become human, then God probably is interested in me. I mean, it makes the universe very personalistic, admittedly, right? God is engaged enough with personal, rational agents that he's taken on our human form. And thirdly, charity, which is enkindled by this, uh, and Augustine says, what, is great, what, is, what greater cause is there for God's coming than to show God's love for us? I hope that raises a little question in your mind. If God loves us so much as to become human, why is there so much you know, ridiculous amounts of evil in the world? Okay, we'll hopefully come back to that a little bit at the end. Then he gives a fourth uh, argument, which is from example, um, that Christ, in, by God becoming human, shows us how best to be, God is the most human of us all. Right? So Jesus of Nazareth shows us in a certain way how to live a most human life. And finally, he, he comes to this, he states overtly this divinization theme. Fifthly, with regards to full participation in the divinity, which is the true bliss of man and the end of human life. And then he quotes Augustine, actually, with the same idea as Athanasius. God was made man that we might be made God. Now, that's not to be taken literally in the Christian tradition. They, Augustine does not actually think literally Christians could become the deity. But rather they might participate in God's own life of beatitude, participate in God's happiness by knowing God and by loving God. Okay. Then he goes into the withdrawal from evil. Uh, first, he talks about the devil. Aquinas is a classical Christian, believes in angels, including fallen angels, and that there are invisible powers of evil in the world. So he's saying that because God showed... This is a kind of solidarity theme. The theologians talk about solidarity theme. In the atonement, that God shows his solidarity with us as people subject to a world in which there are a lot of vicious evils by taking on our human condition to show us uh, how we may through our own perseverance and moral righteousness, overcome the powers of evil in the world. And uh, allied with that is the second argument, which is from uh, that the incarnation shows us the dignity of the human person. It's a very interesting, just in case, just like a, note, a note, notable thing you might not be aware of, but it was rather interesting politically, is that when John Paul II was elected Pope, his first encyclical, Redemptor Omnis, the Redeemer of Men, Redeemer of Human Beings, uses this very argument uh, from Aquinas here to say that if God has become human, then no governmental system may have a, an utter, a, a total competence over the dignity, the exercise of freedom and intellectual life and the dignity of, of, a, of a human being because God has created an alliance with the human person in the incarnation which shows you have a dignity that transcends that of the state. Evidently, he's talking through communism in his native country, Poland. And it's just a very interesting... I find it interesting just as, you know, in terms of historical theology. You have an idea from the Middle Ages that a modern pope took to the heart of the Solidarity Movement in articulating kind of motives for resisting 
what he considered to be a totalitarian system. And actually, it was very effective. That claim that Christianity recalls the dignity of the human person over and against uh, some problematic forms of, of political absolutism. Um, then he talks about the fact that it shows us that we have no merits that precede our receiving friendship with God. Uh, it, it shows us our, uh, that we should be humble. Man's pride, which is the greatest stumbling block, uh, can be con convinced and cured by humility so great. And then he concludes with quoting uh, Augustine and Pope Leo, so 4th and 5th century figures, on, um, it's really the seeds of Anselm's argument. Now I'm going to just summarize it, and I'm going to summarize it badly because Anselm's argument is very subtle, and you just have to kind of oversimplify if you're going to do it in passing. Basically, Anselm argues something like this, and Aquinas believes this. He just believes that God did it by kind of fitting this rather than necessity. Um, the human race has fallen into conundrum. We have a spiritual destiny. We're somehow meant to be related to God and to each other in charity and truthfulness. We fall into pretty serious moral conundrums. We are relatively alienated from Moral righteousness, moral righteousness in regard to one another, at least sometimes we certainly trip up and we have some very important social and political ills that assail us. But we're also deeply alienated from God to the point where we often don't even know God. Consequently, we need to be, as it were, ontologically repaired from within. But at the same time, we need to have a, a rapprochement with God who is infinitely just and good, and so we need a principle within ourselves that would allow us to uh, have a rapprochement with God of justice that is infinite in kind, because God is infinitely just. Like when we, when we, when we offend God, we in some ways alienate ourselves from a principle of infinite justice. So how would we have a fully human um, salvation come from within the human race that has a kind of infinite dignity or infinite justice to it? Well, only if God himself, who is infinite in his dignity and infinite in his justice were to take on our human condition and then live out a life of human moral righteousness and charity and obedience to reconcile us with God as man and as one who is infinite in goodness and justice. Okay, so Anselm's going to kind of argue this is the way God kind of needs to do things once sin has happened, once there's this rupture with God. You kind of need an incarnation to give you infinite righteousness in a human subject. In subjects, he's human. And Aquinas can say, God doesn't have to do it that way, but there's a certain fittingness to it. <clears throat> More on this in a minute. Okay, so that was a sort of, you know, I ran really kind of quickly through what's actually a kind of major article uh, of Aquinas' On the Motives Incarnation. Now, I want to turn to the second um, question he asked, well, the next article he asked, I want to speak about it briefly. This is a really famous controversy in Catholic theology. Would God have become incarnate had human beings never fallen into sin? So this is, the, this is a different question. This is another way of, another angle, as it were, on looking at the, the motives of the incarnation in Christian theology. Um, there is an argument that you find in both Dominicans and um, Franciscans in the Middle Ages, that, so made by St. Albert the Great, who was Aquinas' teacher, a great natural scientist, founder of the University of Cologne, 
um, and also made by Duns Scotus, great Oxfordian uh, Franciscan of the 14th century, that God would have become incarnate even if we never sinned because in a certain way, the incarnation is the purpose for the creation. I mean, God created the whole world to become human. It's like kind of thinking, if you were to take an image of the, the universe as a kind of, I don't know what, a piece of jewelry, you know, a beautiful piece of jewelry, lots of parts, you know, the pendant in the middle would be the incarnation. Right? So everything takes on its beauty, its splendor, it's all irradiated by the incarnation. God created the world to become human. It's a really beautiful idea. But St. Bonaventure, who's Franciscan contemporary of Aquinas, and St. Thomas take a different stance, which is to say it seems from looking at Scripture that God became human principally as a response to human sinfulness. And that's where he, uh, what he says here is, um, he basically expresses a principle here of epistemological modesty. So he says some people think, in the first paragraph there, he says some people think one thing, some people think the other. And he says, but here, look at, this is the second paragraph. Such things as spring from God's will and beyond the creatures do can be made known to us only through being revealed in the sacred scripture in which the divine will is made known to us. In other words, he's saying, look, if you want to answer this kind of question, you've got to look at what God's actually revealed because he could have done, we don't know what God would have done did we not sin. We don't really know enough about God to have that kind of information we're not in a position to have a comprehensive knowledge. And there's a little warning here. It's a very traditional Dominican theological idea. Don't do theology of, of uh, hypothetical counterfactuals. Like where would Adam and Eve, I mean, I, I won't get into questions of the historical fall issue, but let me just put it in the kind of straightforwardly biblical way. Where would Adam and Eve have settled had they never sinned? Well, obviously the French Riviera. I know that. I've been to the French Riviera. My cousin lives in the French Riviera. We would all live on the French Riviera. It's fun to say, but of course, and it's a silly example, but there's actually a lot of rather more serious uh, thought experiments like that in history of theology. And Aquinas is sort of saying, you don't know. You really don't know what would have been or could have been unless God has revealed it to you. And he says, hence, since everywhere in sacred scripture the sin of the first man is assigned as the reason of the incarnation, it's more in accordance with this to say the work of the incarnation was ordained by God as a remedy for sin, so that had sin not existed, the incarnation would not have been. And yet, God's not limited in his power. Even had sin not existed, God could have become incarnate. And you say, well, okay, St. Thomas, that's very modest of you. But wouldn't it be nice to believe in that beautiful jewelry analogy that Father White was just making a moment ago? And that the incarnation is like this beautiful kind of central mystery of creation? Well, <laughs> Aquinas... It gets harder to put it in an image, but Aquinas has an equally beautiful idea, which is the, the ultimate reason for the creation of the world is the Trinity itself, God himself. So Aquinas thinks God made the world not primarily to become incarnate in it or to become human, but God made the world so that we could enjoy God, that we could enjoy the, the blessedness and the happiness of God and learn who God was. That's different than God becoming human. It's not opposed, but it's very different, and so it's a different point of accent. And you have a lot of theological ink spilt over that debate between these different viewpoints. Now you do get later, Aquinas, Aquinas has later commentators who say, okay, fine, God, the creed says, for us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. That's the Nicene Creed. So it says right in the creed, God became incarnate for our salvation. But you have commentators say, yeah, but I mean, look at, 
If God becomes incarnate in a certain way, it's a better world than if he didn't. And God wouldn't have created the world without wanting or intending in some way to do something more noble or better. So, can you say that God became incarnate because of human sin and yet has, in a way, because of the incarnation, made the world better despite sin, or maybe in a way, as a response to sin, made the world better than it ever would have been in the first place? So then you have another theological argument. Because other people say, well, wait a minute now. I mean, the history of human sinfulness, I mean, I do... Have you read the Gulag Archipelago? Do you, do you know a little bit about like Auschwitz? Like, there's a lot of things that have happened in the human race, and even that happen that are much more you know, hidden or conventional, that are very painful. And so you don't want to kind of tr instrumentalize evil as a kind of a happy fixture of creation that allows us to have the beautiful incarnation come about. Right? On the other hand, it is true like that if God has become human, that's extraordinarily magnificent. And it's, you know, it is arguably the greatest thing that's ever happened. And if it's real still in the resurrection, then if Christ is real, then that's the greatest reality there is. So these are interesting questions to think about theologically. All right. We are not quite approaching the runway, but we're at that point in the airplane ride where the stewardess tells you that you're in a few minutes going to need to... Close your laptop computer. I'm just saying that to give you hope. Like, we're not right. I'm not going to land the plane yet, but we've made it two-thirds of the way through our journey. Okay. How does the incarnation relate to the mystery of the atonement? Now, I'm skipping way ahead here to question 46. This is like hundreds of pages later in the Summa. And Aquinas is asking about whether it's fitting that God should suffer human death. Now, evidently, the logic here is connected. God becomes human, and God doesn't wave the proverbial magic wand over the world to remake all of God's broken toys so that we all snap to attention and start doing what we're supposed to be. He actually gets into the thick and drama of human history and experiences um, unjust um, rejection, arrest, torture, mockery, shame, and execution. All right, so that's a very strong traditional Christian claim that God underwent human death and, and not any kind of death but a pretty grievous one with a high degree of suffering. So in this question, I'm just giving you objection three and response to objection three because they're really interesting. I, I think really beautiful. So he objects in the, obje in, in his, Aquinas always gives objections and responses. I've cut a lot of those out but you know, sometimes they're really more, the more interesting part of the article. So he says in Objection uh, 3, further as it's written, so was it necessary for Christ to suffer? Well, you know he's going to say it's fitting. It's only fitting. But it's fitting why? Well, he says, as it's written, all the ways of the Lord are mercy and truth, but it's not seem necessary that he should suffer on the part of divine mercy, which, he bestows, uh, which as it bestows gifts freely, so it appears to condone debts without satisfaction. So what he's saying is, it's not really very merciful for God to become human and suffer as a way to save us because if God's really merciful he can just forgive us he doesn't have to go through all the drama we don't need the drama of the passion and death of Christ we can just have you know an expedient efficient divine mercy all right but then he turns around like almost like schizophrenic and uh, says but on the part of justice it's also wrong according to which man had deserved everlasting condemnation right so just let them go they're not interested in you let them go that's real justice 
And God, by saving the human race or inviting the human race to salvation, has like foregone real justice. Right? So it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's sort of wimpy justice. Mer- justice rendered impure by a problematic mercy. Okay. Reply to objection three. That man should be delivered by Christ's passion was in keeping with both his mercy and his justice. So he's going to double down and he's going to say they each enrich each other. With his justice, because by his passion, Christ made satisfaction for the sins of the human race. Now, the word in Latin there is satisfactio, which is not like we, you know, like I'm thirsty. Okay, can you give me some Gatorade? Yes, thank you for the Gatorade. Now I've sated my thirst. I'm satisfied. That's not medieval satisfactio. Medieval satisfactio is like, um, to give a a kind of mundane example, um, you're dating someone and you say something really gauche about your uh, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend's father at the d- dinner table, and you realize it was really kind of idiotic. So then you don't just write a text, but you actually go to their house and you say, you know, I really apologize for that. That was really inappropriate. That's making satisfactio. That's like, it's like, rec- it's rapprochement in the order of justice. It's, and it's what is called in a more formal way, atonement. And atonement in English just means, is an English word, not a Latin word, atonement. It's a medieval English word, early, early modern or late medieval English word, at one man, to unite, right? to be reunited with someone, is to make atonement. Okay, So it's in keeping with justice, because by his passion Christ made atonement for the sin of the human race. He reconciled us to God, and so man was set free by Christ's justice. Now that's a nice image. So for Aquinas, justice is not like some strange, bizarre, American, stoic idea of uh, law and order. It's, it's justitia is, is recovering the really deep order of things. So like when you recover friendship with someone who you're estranged from and there's a reconciliation in charity and love, that's like putting order, deep, the deep down order back in things. That's, just, there's a, that's like justitia is the dimension of that. So God has put order back in the world through the atonement of Christ by uniting the human race to himself. And it's in accord with his mercy, for since man of himself could not satisfy for the sin of all human nature, as was said above, God gave him his son to satisfy for him or to make atonement for him. Uh, And I'm going to skip the um, important uh, biblical uh, sort of uh, tent peg there where he shows you it's biblical. He then adds this interesting idea. And this came of a more copious mercy than if he had forgiven sins without the atonement. So what he's saying to you is, um, it is more merciful for God to communicate to you the justice of Christ than if God were to just forgive you without giving you justification or atoning justice in Christ. Because the thing is that uh, as people who need to be in a certain right relationship with God but don't have, as it were, from ourselves the power to get there, by living in the grace of Christ, we're given something that's like much more emboldening, much more liberating, because we actually are able to claim to be part of the very justice or right, the mysterious, it's a mystery, but the mysterious righteousness of Christ. So Aquinas doesn't think like the righteousness of Christ is something locked behind a glass uh, case, like that, that strange toy store at the base of, in Manhattan at the base of... Uh, Park Avenue or whatever it is. You know, you, I don't remember that name, that weird toy store with all the toys that cost like $3,000 each. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, but you know, you, you walk by there and you think, who buys this stuff? Now maybe all of you are buying it, but <laughs> if you are, you're not living on my mendicant salary. And, uh, but that's not what Aquinas, Aquinas actually paradoxically doesn't think that's the case with Christ's own righteousness. He actually thinks it's something that can be, as it were, deployed in our own fragile human nature, and that this is actually more merciful that God would allow us to partake of Christ's justice, which of course he thinks we have principally through the sacraments. All right, last, let's just turn briefly to the problem of evil. Why does moral and physical evil exist in the world after the incarnation? Aquinas doesn't ask this question quite as directly as I did in the bold print. He states it in a more discreet way in the question on baptism. This is later on in the treatise on Christ and the sacraments, where he asks whether baptism should remedy all the ills of this life. Otherwise said, if this is all real, how come people who are conformed to Christ and the sacrament of baptism are still subject to the ills of this life? He says, baptism does have the power to take away... You say penalties, that's another bad English translation. Um, or a questionable one, pene in Latin. Um, duresses, the duress that's happened because of the fall. Right? So all the problems of the human condition that stem in part from the misuse of human freedom. So does, penalties doesn't mean our own guilt. It could be a pene, could be something you endure because of something else that someone else did that's left you in a, in a condition that you're innocent, uh, you have innocently inherited. But anyway... Baptism has the power to take away all the, the sufferings or the pene of the present life, yet it does not take them away during the present life, but by its power they will be taken away uh, from the just in the resurrection. Okay, so here he goes directly to what we would call eschatology, the last things, the question of God's redemption of the world. But then he gives reasons. Why doesn't God zap us with the magic wand and make all the problems go away? First, because by baptism man is incorporated in Christ and is made his member by grace, living in the grace of Christ. Consequently, it is fitting, there's that convenience again, that kind of beauty of what God does, there's a kind of mysterious beauty, that what takes place in the head in Christ should also take place in the incorporated member. Now, from the very beginning of his conception, Christ was full of grace and truth, yet he had a body capable of suffering, which through his passion and death was raised up to a life of glory in the physical resurrection Wherefore, a Christian receives grace in baptism as to his soul, but he retains a body subject to suffering, that he may suffer for Christ therein, yet at length he may be raised up to a life of impassibility. Impassibility doesn't mean non-emotional frozenness. It means a life where you're ontologically incapable of being further subject to suffering, and where the psychological, spiritual, and physical suffering of this life is no longer has power or duress over the person. Um, so he's saying there's like a mystery of Christological conformity. Grace invites us to be conformed to the mystery. So God, if you go back to the logic of the incarnation, God became human in part so that he could unite himself to us. And we could, in and through all the kind of drama of life, live in the core of our person, in the spiritual faculties of the soul, particularly through faith, hope, and charity, uh, with Christ uh, in the Christian life. He then talks about how that invites us to a life of spiritual training, namely in order that by fighting against concupiscence, that's another Latin word, concupiscentia, it's lust, but it's also possessiveness, it's like disordered love. It's, it's, a, very, it's a kind of broad word that means like uh, having your heart be all over the place and not exactly in the right place. 
and other defects to which he is subject, a man may receive the crown of victory. So here's the idea that like what Christ has brought into the world in the incarnation is he's communicating to us the grace to make it possible to live a life of genuine virtue and charity and love in the world, in a world even in which there's a great deal of evil, and even in ourselves in which there's a great deal of struggle. So there's a kind of realism to Aquinas. There's plenty of reasons you can object to Christian eschatology or you know, Christian belief, but Aquinas is not, I mean, people in the Middle Ages, of course, died younger. That's a very public thing, the way it isn't for us. They're realists. They see the body dies. They know that the Christian faith is a kind of journey uh, of living in view of the life of God with hope in the, in the life of the soul after death, but also hope in the, the power of the resurrection vis-a-vis human flesh and human mortality. Um, and then thirdly, he says, less, I like this last argument, which is from Augustine in the City of God. Lest men might seek to be baptized for the sake of impassibility in the present life, freedom from suffering, and not for the sake of the glory of life eternal. Now Augustine says, look at why don't, you, why don't you just get baptized and not die? Why wouldn't God do that? Like, Christ comes into the world, he's resurrected from the dead, go and baptize all the nations, you go baptize somebody, finally, and they're immediately immortal. He says, well, first of all, everybody would line up, you know, to get baptized immediately, and it'd be the only motive would be freedom from suffering, I mean, the primary motive. He says, the mystery is different than that, because the mystery, consent to the mystery is fundamentally motivated through free will consent. So this is a kind of free will argument you find in Augustine, that the mystery is present among us, but not meant to be so evident and overpowering that it is that it controls or that it controls consent or that it compels consent by violence. And so this is the idea that grace is real, but grace is an invitation to which one consents freely. Pascal uses a similar kind of argument in the Pensees. He says that. For those who do not wish to find the light, they can absolutely freely evade it. But for those who wish to find it, signs are never lacking. So Aquinas, interestingly here, has this kind of argument that baptism is about a kind of mystery of discretion. And if you're, um, especially if you're from the Protestant tradition, you'd be interested to see that there's something here very strong about the merit of faith. To to believe in God, to believe in Christ is meritorious. Well, okay, Protestants didn't talk about merit of faith. I understand Luther doesn't like merit language. But if you think about justification by faith, the emphasis is on the righteousness of the soul exists in part because of the kind of covenant bond with God in faith. And both Luther and Aquinas talk about faith as a kind of marriage of the soul to God, a fidelity. You know, so there's a kind of drama of fidelity of the soul to God through life uh, in faith. Which, invite, which has to be you know, in, engaged in with freedom.